0: We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the ERLC podcast. As we've mentioned, Trillian Newbell will be hosting a special series beginning in February. Here's a sneak peek at what you can expect. We better we are called by God and saved by God through Christ, then we should want to know God. And how are we going to know him except through knowing his word? You just focus on the goal. What are we trying to do? What are we trying to accomplish? What is our mission? And we trust each other. We've been put together to do this. When we spend so much time only emphasizing certain gift sets for women, then what you do is you leave all of the women who are equipped in other ways to say either I'm
1: not gifted or I'm not really a woman.
0: Letting women know that I'm willing to listen to questions and concerns you have is powerful and encouraging.
1: There is no such thing as a follower of Christ who does not have a contribution to make to the kingdom of God.
0: Hi, I'm Trillian Newbell, and I'm excited to announce our series, Better Together. The series captures our desire to partner together as men and women in the church and beyond to advance the kingdom with mutual support and care. Better Together will address a wide range of topics from sexual abuse, leadership, women in work, women's ministry, and so much more. Our goal is to inform and equip listeners on matters most important to women in the areas of church, home, and work. Better together. Talking to our children about the many issues they face in today's world isn't an easy task. Every day, they are confronted with issues we didn't even dream of when we were younger. At our national conference, Andrew Walker gave parents a few tips in his talk, Christ-Centered Parenting, How to Have Gospel Conversations with Your Kids on Complex Cultural Issues. We hope you find this message helpful.
1: Last year, I wrote a book called God and the Transgender Debate. And let's just say that a few people had opinions about the nature of my book, especially if you would check my Twitter timeline occasionally. But over the last year, I got calls from pastors and parents asking me for counsel on situations dealing with transgender family members and church visitors. And since the publication of my book last year, not a week has gone by where I have not received some type of question about how to handle the transgender revolution in our midst. But last December, I received a voicemail. And like any good millennial uh, who hates voicemails, uh, I decided I was just going to ignore that voicemail. But something inside of me said, no, maybe I should check that voicemail out. And so I listened to it. And when I listened to that voicemail, A man named Gary was on the line, and he was a public school teacher and an elder at his local church, and he explained to me that he had a teenage daughter who had recently come out to them, he and his wife, saying to them that she wanted to live as a man, that she wanted to transition. He calmly explained the situation, but as he did, he began to weep. This 40-year-old man began to sob on the line over voicemail. He loved his daughter so much, but it was concerned about her well-being and that her decision to transition went against Scripture. So he basically said, what do I do? What can I do? What Can you help me? So, So we decided, we agreed to chat after I called him back in person. So last December, he drove up to Nashville for a morning session where he and his wife and his family and his children, all of the children except the one who was wanting in transition. We sat at a cracker barrel for about an hour and a half and they poured out their life and poured out their grief over this recent news coming from their daughter. And it was utterly heart-wrenching. And my biggest advice was to, for them to communicate their unwavering love to their daughter and to their sister. Not their agreement, but their Love. When it comes to issues related to the transgender revolution, the, the media would tell you that evangelical Christians are just the fundamentalist bigots on this type of issue and that we, that we hate transgender people. But what I saw that morning at Cracker Barrel could not have been any more different. I saw a family in tears grappling with a situation because someone they loved, someone who had had a lifetime of mental health issues, was going down a path that they believed was contrary to Scripture and would not lead to the happiness that this individual thought would bring them. Every single person in this family communicated their love for their daughter and for their sister in this situation. So, so why do I tell this story? Because when we talk about issues related to transgenderism and, and gender, it immediately gets publicized and politicized because the culture wants us to view this simply as a culture war issue around public policy issues and, and, and bathroom bill debates, which those are important to have. But as Christians, we can't leave it just at that level. We have to understand that this is an issue of the love of neighbor. It's an issue of human dignity. It's an issue of human flourishing. It's an issue where vulnerable people's lives are on the line. But it's also an issue and a test of biblical authority. And I tell this story also because from my experience, this issue hits the family so hard like a punch To the stomach, it's 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 not simply an issue affecting one person. It's an issue affecting families in their totality, and families have to get this right in their response. And here's why: because it's not a matter of if this issue is going to come into your orbit somehow. It's a matter of when. Whether it's a family member, a friend, a son, a daughter, a cousin, a church member, it's a matter of when, not if. And this means we need to be proactive right now in our various spheres about how we think about this and how we talk about this and what we understand the Bible says about the issue of gender because we can't be caught flat-footed. So what do we do as Christians and Christian families when situations like this confront us? First off, we listen. We empathize. We express our desire to help. The first things out of our mouth are, we love you no matter what. And even if you go down a path that we believe is contrary to Scripture, because we love you with a radical love, you are always going to be loved and you're always going to be welcome in our home because we love you, even if we disagree with you. See, the world tells everyone that you either affirm someone who's LGBT or you hate someone who's LGBT. But that's the world's calculus, and we don't follow that calculus as Christians because we don't play by the world's rules. We follow Jesus. And Jesus, when we look at him, teaches us something different. We see Jesus full of truth and grace. And truth and grace are not realities on opposite sides of the the spectrum with Jesus. They're embodied Both simultaneously at the same time in the life and ministry of Jesus. And because we follow Jesus, this means we can be honest about what we believe the scriptures teach about being made male and female in God's image. But it also means that we aren't surprised by how sin shows up in a broken world, in a Genesis 3 and a Romans 8 world. Following Jesus means grace and truth. So, so what does truth tell us in a situation like this? Truth tells us that we actually have a blueprint for understanding the issue of gender and the transgender revolution. That Genesis gives us a blueprint in Genesis 1, that we learn that God made humanity in his image, that God made humanity male and female, and that he made male and female exclusively for one another. So that's, that's a Genesis blueprint, but what, what do we see established in this pattern, in this Genesis blueprint? We see that God has sovereign control over his creation and our design, that we cannot simply recreate ourselves based on our autonomous will or our preference or our psychological perceptions. We see that God has made males and females comprehensively different down to our chromosomes, down to our reproductive designs, our body shapes, and down even to our voices. This means when we're talking about truth, we understand that individuals can't simply be who their minds tell them to be if that self-understanding is at odds with how God made them. Because chromosomes cannot be re-engineered. A biological male, for example, will always be male regardless of whatever cosmetic or surgical changes are made to the body. But we also see in Genesis 1 the reality of human dignity. One of the most profound things that Christianity has ever offered the world. Where it's, it's where our notion of human rights comes from, if you're living in the West. This notion of human dignity, that everyone has dignity and worth in God's eyes. Christian, non-Christian, Jewish, Muslim. Everyone has dignity and worth in God's eyes, and humans are called to respect that dignity. So that's truth. But what does grace tell us in a situation like this? Grace tells us that God's good design was thwarted by sin, that we didn't simply stay in Genesis 1 and 2. And so people experience the brokenness of a sinful world in every aspect of our existence, that we're comprehensively fallen, that there's no part of our existence that sin somehow didn't weave itself into, even into our bodies and even how we think. But with grace and with Jesus, we learn that we should not be surprised by any of this. In fact, he says his ministry was for those people the most hurt, the most sensitive, the most broken. He says he came to call the sick, not those who are already well. There's a passage in Matthew 12 that I came to dwell on quite heavily as I wrote my book, God and the Transgender Debate. And if you know me personally, you know I'm someone with strong opinions. I'm easily caricatured and put in that category of the culture warrior because I'm willing to stand for truth no matter what. So I kind of set out to write this book where I was going to be kind of the culture warrior standing for truth, and my editor made a wonderful suggestion to me. He said, why don't you dial it down a little bit? And then he reminded me of this passage in Matthew 12, verse 20 through 21. And somehow, in all of my seminary education, I have glossed over this passage. It's a passage where where Matthew picks up language from Isaiah, from the prophet Isaiah, and he applies it to Jesus' ministry, and it's this passage in Matthew twelve twenty 20-21. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. The imagery here that Matthew is applying to Jesus is that of a gentle Jesus, who cares for and loves the people who seem to be suffering and hopeless. And and, and the imagery of 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 the bruised reed, of a thin branch that could easily snap with just a little bit more pressure if you apply it. But Jesus says he came to minister, save, and love those exact types of people. And why does this matter? Because when you take a picture and a snapshot of the transgender community and and, and those who report having gender dysphoria, we see a population afflicted by disproportionately high rates of depression, anxiety, suicide, and thoughts of suicide. And this reality ought to make Christians all the more sensitive and empathetic and compassionate towards our neighbors. And we can do this because we have a theology of sin and we have a theology of the cross. We understand that we live in a Genesis 3 and Romans 8 world. We're destined for new creation, but we still live in broken cisterns and earthen vessels. But we can make sense of people's experiences of living in a broken world. A theology of the cross and a theology of sin has real world implications. For example, if if anyone here has a child or family member that is identifying as gay or lesbian or transgender, do not abandon them. Do not abandon them. I do not know how this poisonous thinking infected evangelicalism. But in my role at the ERLC, I've heard from parents who have a gay or lesbian or transgender child who think that because their child is identifying as as one of those categories, it means they have to abandon them and banish them away. And maybe this is because parents are embarrassed or fearful of their neat and tidy life and their all-American appearance being disrupted. Or maybe it's because they're embarrassed about how their parenting will be judged at their local church. If you have that attitude towards others, you should crucify it. If you have that attitude yourself about your child, you need to crucify it. And here's why. Because there's nothing, and I repeat, nothing that can nullify the relationship between a parent and a child. Nothing. I'm about to conclude, and I want to end with a story about a new friend I have named Shannon. Shannon is a transgendered individual Shannon is a lawyer living in Washington, D.C., working for one of the most aggressively progressive uh, liberal organizations in the United States. And when my book first published in August of 2017, uh, Shannon began to send, I'll just say, less-than-kind tweets my way. So I ignored, ignored Shannon at first, but eventually Shannon began to become a little bit more civil to the point that I thought, I'll start interacting with this person. And after I Googled this person's name, I found out Shannon is actually a very well-respected, nationally recognized person. And so those initial back and forths on Twitter led to more back and forths on Twitter, just banter about anything and everything under the sun. And surprisingly enough, we figured out through Twitter that there were a lot of things we actually agreed upon about life, even though we disagree on some fundamentally important things, like the definition of what it means to be a male or A female. When the ERLC had our Evangelicals for Life conference in D.C. last January, I direct messaged Shannon through Twitter and asked if uh, Shannon would want to get together for coffee while I was in town. And I was apprehensive about what this conversation would look like. I'm sure Shannon was as well, but here we were. We went to Starbucks and you had a conservative, evangelical ethicist and a transgender activist, laughing and having coffee, sharing serious disagreements. But I had an absolute blast with my friend Shannon, and I recognize that even though I disagree with choices and the ideology and the worldview of Shannon, I recognize that Shannon is still a, a human, that Shannon has intrinsic worth and dignity Inviolable dignity that I as a Christian am called to respect even when I disagree with this person's understanding of, of dignity even. And towards the end of the conversation, I learned something really interesting that Shannon had actually read my book. And it gets even stranger is that Shannon ended up thanking me for my book. So you can imagine me sitting there across the table. I kind of leaned in and I said, can I ask you why you're thanking me for my book? And Shannon proceeded to tell me that even though I disagree with you on, on what's best for kids or how, or how best to treat transgender people, I know you mean to do good by them. You do not mean anyone harm. I've not forgotten those words, and I likely never will the rest of my life because it revealed to me that kindness and empathy. Are not opposed to biblical truth, but are the foundations for how the Bible calls us to love our neighbor. Thank you.
0: Thanks for tuning in to the ERLC podcast. To keep up with all of our latest episodes, subscribe on iTunes or Google Play and join us next week for a panel about children and education.